is full of great stories, characters, and particularly the story of the birth of Jesus is, I find to be very colorful. There's lots of things happening, lots of uh, characters involved. And last Sunday, we covered probably what many would consider to be one of the villains of the story and how sometimes we are a little bit like the villain. We like to make ourselves out to be like the heroes and the heroines. We want to be the good guys. But our human nature tends, the reason why there are villains in the world and in stories is because it's a clue that connects us back to our human nature. It's, it's not as good as it seems. And even the good we do sometimes, the Bible makes reference to it, it's like a, a filthy rag before God. And uh, in other words, we couldn't do enough good to make up for the evil in the world. We can't do enough good to, to rectify the, the bad even in us. And so sometimes it helps to recognize in what ways am I like Herod, you know? And Herod was the king who didn't want to be dethroned. He didn't want to make room for Jesus in his life. He didn't want another king deposing him and taking over his place. But sometimes we're like that. We don't want God to step into our lives and, and tell us how to live or how what to do or to be the king of our lives. And so sometimes we find ourselves a little bit more like Herod than we are like the other characters of the story. But there are, there are some some interesting individuals that we could draw parallels to and, and, and connections from. And sometimes we, we miss their story because we're focused on maybe the obvious elements of, of the Christmas story. I remember my dad's tradition at, at our family Christmases was to read from Luke chapter 2. We started at Luke 2, kind of avoiding, not really avoiding, but just, you know, getting to the good part, right? Let's get to the good part. Let's skip to the, the part that, you know, announces the angels and the, the exciting things. But there were some pretty awesome things that happened before the actual birth of Jesus Christ. And in two characters I want to I wanna draw from this morning, um, we find in actually Luke chapter 1. And uh, we're going to read from verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. Zechariah, yes. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Now these kinds of uh, details kind of escape us a little bit, the significance of these 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 points that are being made about Zechariah and Elizabeth because we don't really hail, most of us, I think everybody in this room doesn't really hail from any kind of Jewish upbringing or Jewish roots. And even if we were, the significance of the day is lost on us because of time that has passed. But suffice to say, a quick lesson on that back history is the tribe of Levi was the one tribe out of all 12 of Israel, Israel's made up of 12 tribes. If you go back to the story of Jacob, who later became Israel, he had 12 sons. And I won't try to remember all of the names, but you might remember some of them, like Judah. You might recognize the name Reuben or Simeon or uh, even Joseph. 
you might recognize some of those names. These are the 12 sons of Israel or Jacob. And each one of those sons had their respective families. And, and Israel was very uh, dedicated to keeping good records. They wanted to maintain records of family lineage. And to this day, many Jews can trace their lineage back to certain tribes and families within uh, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And especially at the days of Jesus, in the days of Jesus, if you, the reason why was mainly to know who the priests were, because there was only one tribe that was eligible to be the priest. Now, the priest was an interesting individual because he was the only person that was allowed to go into the temple of God. Now, we have the beauty of coming into a church building freely. We have the privilege of praying in any location at any time of the day and connecting with God and, and receiving forgiveness of sins and making our requests known and worshiping him. Uh, uh, you, you can worship in your home. You can, you can pray through to the gift of the Holy Ghost right in your house, in your home. You don't need to be in a church service with the music pumping and the, and the preacher screaming in the microphone to feel the presence of God. In fact, I believe God desires more so for you to experience his presence and the joy of his love in your home than in a church building, per se. But in the days of Jesus, the only place you could really connect with God and have forgiveness of sins and, and meet all of these requirements of relationship was in the temple in Jerusalem. And the priests were the ones that were assigned to make the offerings, pray the prayers, pray the blessings, and cover the people. You, you didn't have a Bible in your home like you do today, where you not only have a, probably a few Bibles on your shelf, but you have the picture Bible for your kids, and then you have the Bible app that will read to you whatever translation, whatever language you want to read it from. And and if you're confused about a word, you can. most apps have a, a dictionary. You can press on it and find the def That wasn't, I mean, the Bible is so accessible to us today that we lose the significance of the word of God to the Jews of the, of, of the first century. And for them, the only way they could have the scriptures in their heart was to memorize it and to go to synagogue or temple and hear the word of God read out loud. Paper was not as common as it is today. Scrolls were not, they were all handwritten. There was no printing presses. Mass productions of scripture was not a thing. So only the synagogues and the temples had actual copies of the scripture. So Zechariah was one of these priests. And he was of the tribe of Levi, a member of the order of Abijah. And his wife was a member of of the house of Aaron. Now that's an even more significant because out of all the Levites, only the Aaronites were allowed or eligible to be high priests. So there was the regular priest, and there was lots of jobs like uh, sacrificing animals, trimming the, the wicks and the, the lamp lanterns in the temple, and, and uh, you know organizing that. There was the musician, uh, the group of musicians. You might read the Psalms. And read of uh, the sons, um, oh, his name escapes me now, but there's, there's psalms written by, um, oh, man, Asaph, thank you, the, 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 the sons of Asaph, and, and different 
men like that. You read about it in the Psalms, the, the intro line of some of the Psalms. They have these uh, annotations of who wrote the Psalm. And this was the group of Levites that were responsible for music in the temple. But then there was the high priest. And there was only one high priest in a generation. So uh, in a 50-year span, there was only one person that was assigned to be the high priest. And Elizabeth was of that line, that family. Now, she would have never been a high priest. But you understand, her being of the tribe of Aaron would have kind of elevated her a little bit in the the, if there was a caste system or a, a ranking of who you were and uh, who's who, you, she would have been near the top. She was of the highest order. Zechariah was of the order of Abijah. This was one of 24 classes of groups of priests. And, and, and in, these, in this order, basically what it said, the reason why they divided it up was so that they could make sure everybody got a chance to serve in the temple. Now, you would think that if you were a priest, you would probably serve in the temple every day, but that's not the case. Because there were so many priests, they divided them into groups, and you would likely only serve in the temple two times a year. Only about twice a year would you be scheduled to go in and trim the wicks, burn the incense, present the offerings, eat the table of the showbread, uh, you know, it wasn't likely that you would go in on a regular weekly basis. It was like twice a year that you were lauded in to go. And that was just your group. That wasn't you specifically. That was your group of 24. Within your group, they would do something like casting lots. This is like drawing straws or eeny, meeny, miny, moe, basically. Uh, which one of us is going to go in? And, and so you understand... It, it could have been maybe a three or four years before you specifically would go in and serve in the temple. And the Bible tells us that it was in the days of Herod that Zechariah, who was in a division of Abijah, uh, was chosen by Lot to go into the temple. He was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood. He was chosen by Lot, in verse 9, to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This really was almost like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him. Maybe it would happen two times. Maybe it would have happened three if you were fortunate or blessed. But likely, this was the one and only time he was allowed to go into the temple and burn incense unto the Lord and worship God on behalf of the people. The Bible tells us that, that they were both righteous in God's eyes. Careful to obey, verse 6, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. Now, when the Bible indicates to us that someone is righteous before God, this doesn't mean that they were strictly religious. While they were, Okay, that was not really the qualification. That's when the Bible talks about someone being righteous. It doesn't mean they were perfect. It doesn't mean they were flawless. Because if you read of Abraham in the Bible, the Bible says that Abraham, God attributed to him righteousness for the sole reason that Abraham had faith and confidence in God. 
So when the Bible marks somebody as righteous, it's really indicating to you that they had a, de a deep heartfelt relationship with God. It wasn't that they were perfect. Now, now, the Bible does say they were careful to obey. They were careful to obey. That was part of their, their, their life with God. But they weren't careful to obey out of fear. They weren't careful to obey because they were afraid of getting it wrong. They were careful to obey because of their faith and their love for God. Before you can teach somebody the, the rules to obey. I, I've had people come to me, Pastor, just give me the list of rules that they don't stick around. Because you can't keep a list of rules. You've got to have a relationship with God. It's got to come from your heart, your desire to serve him. It's got to be out of your faith in him and your love for him that your devotion to him comes. When it comes from love, it's not a burden. It's not a rule. It's, it's a relationship. When it comes from your love for him is greater than your love for this world. It's a, it's a deep heartfelt relationship and it's not a burden to uh, abstain from certain worldly things it's not a burden to 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 give up your your desires or what you want as an individual because it comes from your heart it comes from your spirit it comes from your devotion to him and this was Zechariah and Elizabeth's way of life they were living righteously before God yet with all of this in their life the Bible says that Elizabeth was unable to bear children now, again, we have to jump back into the mindset of the first century woman. The f mindset of the first century Middle Eastern woman was, my role is to mother and care for my home and disciple my children. This was the, 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 the mindset. The, the husband's job was to work the field to to earn the family income, to provide for the home. The, the, the wife's job was, was, was very rooted and grounded in her work at home. Now, that doesn't mean she was not industrious. In fact, this, the Bible is the least oppressive on women. The Bible in its day was a culturally liberating book. It liberated women to be free to do. You read Proverbs 31. What is the Proverbs 31 woman? This woman is working in the marketplace. She is selling. She is investing. She has property. She is, she is, she is a busy woman. She is also taking care of her family. She's up working, up early making food for them, but she's also making sure they're clothed. She's also making sure that the, she's investing what income she's able to bring into the house, back into the marketplace. This was not a, a repressed woman. This was a liberated woman that was able to work within her field. But a mark of a, a good wife at this day was the ability to bear a son for your husband. Because you wanted him to be able to pass his name on to his children. And it was more than just to elevate your husband's name, but it was also your own security. There was no government security programs. There was no uh, old, age, old age pension. There was no uh, CPP or, or any of these things that we have today that, that people can rely on if, if they're left alone. They have, they have something to su supplement their income and help them through those later years of life. Your, your insurance was how many children you had. If you had multiple sons, 
you were, you were pretty relaxed. You were pretty set in your heart because if your husband died before you, your sons would be charged with taking care of you. And if your one son died, you had another one to come up with. You remember, medical science was, was less than it is today. So the, the, the rate of childhood death was, was high. So the more children you could have, the better secure your life was. As in, we're just trying to look at it through their lens, right? You have to look at it through the eyes of these characters. Yet Elizabeth was barren. She was unable to have children. This was a mark of unspeakable shame for a woman of that day. To best get an eye of how serious of a condition this was, read from, from other women who were unable to have children. Women like Rachel, the wife of Jacob, who said, Jacob said, Give me children or else I die. I would rather be dead than to be childless. I would rather to cease to exist and my husband be able to marry somebody else and have children than for me to go without children in my life. Tamar, the daughter-in-law to Judah, son of Jacob, seduced her father-in-law when her husband died just in order to bear a child to carry on his name and secure her welfare as an older woman. Sarah, wife of Abraham, gave her handmaiden to her husband to be able to produce a child so they could say, this is the next in line for Abraham. It, think of how crazy a, of that is. Wives, think of how wild it is. You're unable to have a child, so you hand another woman over to your husband and say, I'll adopt this woman's child. If you just have a child with her, I'll adopt her as my own. I'll adopt this child as my own. That's crazy in our Western Modern way of thinking, you know, we would say, well, there's fertility clinics, there's adoption things, there's so many other options. But for them, this was, it was this or nothing. It was do or die. I need to have a child. I must have a child. This was their, their life goal. It was their security. It was everything for them. But it's interesting to me that Elizabeth doesn't go to any of these extreme measures to have a child. Despite her shame, despite her agony, despite her burden of being unable to have a child in her old age. They are now old, great in years. When she, was, when she was younger, no doubt this was the topic of every prayer she prayed. Every time her husband was serving in the temple, she would say, Oh, Zechariah, when you're in the temple today, don't forget to mention to the Lord about me having a child. When you're serving him, don't, don't forget to remind him. And every day that she would pray, every day that she would get on her knees, in her own little way to talk to God. No doubt she would pray about this very thing, God, I want a child. I want a child. And she prayed and they tried. And they tried and they prayed. And they prayed and they tried and they tried and they prayed and they confessed and they believed and they trusted and they read stories. No doubt she reminded herself of Rachel. She reminded herself of Hannah. She reminded herself of Tamar. She reminded herself of all these women that had come before her that as like her were barren in their womb, unable to have a child. And yet God blessed them. And so she kept praying those prayers and, and, and reaching to God for those things. And yet age came and passed when she was eligible to have a child and no doubt the hope faded as every year passed when she passed that age of child rearing and child bearing and being able to run after a child or take care of a child and as she got older perhaps she devoted herself to caring for the children in her area who knows the Bible doesn't say but 
She didn't allow this disappointment in life, this, this great shame and, and, and weight that she carried to weigh her away from God and pull her away from God. Zechariah was, was chosen in our story in Luke 1 to go before the Lord and burn incense. To go before the Lord and burn incense before him. And the Bible says when Zechariah went into the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the incense altar. And Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. I've had lots of people tell me, I want to see an angel before I die. And, and I, I mean, yes, that would be a wonderful experience. I think it would be. But I also, I also read every time someone sees an angel, they, they all but fall down dead. They shake. They tremble. There's one, there's one passage where they get a little incontinent and they, you know, they lose control of their, their physical faculties uh, because experiencing the presence of an angel is a terrifying experience and and enough for, for almost every time someone sees an angel the first thing out of their mouth is don't be afraid <laughs> don't be scared don't be scared Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear of the angel said don't be afraid Zechariah Ze God has heard your prayer and I, I bet Zechariah's mind is racing what prayer is is he talking about the new donkey I asked for you know or is this Oh, no, this is the prayer. You mean the prayer? I mean the one we've been praying for the last 40 years? But how, like, are you sure? Uh, and he says, your wife Elizabeth will give you a son and you are to name him John. God has heard your prayers. God has heard your prayers. What, you know, the... Just the mind races when you hear those words, God has heard your prayers. Maybe it had been a bunch of years since Zechariah had even hoped to pray that prayer. You can't imagine that an old man is going to pray that his old wife is going to deliver and give birth to a son. There, at, at some point in our mind, as humans, we, we just go, you know what, I think we're past this stage. I think we're past you know, she wasn't, she wasn't fertile when she was young. I can't imagine. It's, it, it's not like cheese. It doesn't get better with age. You know, it, it's, it's not the same. It's not like wine. It's not something that improves over time. It's, it's going to deteriorate. It's going to get worse and even harder. How, how is this possible for, for this to happen? No doubt they had stopped praying. No doubt they had given up on this hope of having a child, but the angel appears to Zechariah in the temple and said, Zechariah, your wife is going to have a child. The angel continued to tell him about this child. He said, you will have great joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And by the way, this is the one and only time this happened in the scripture. He will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. He will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. I mean, this wasn't just a child. This was the super child. 
This was not just an answer to the prayer, but this far exceeded the hopes and the fears and the dreams of Zechariah and Elizabeth. I'm here to tell you this morning, God is a God who exceeds your expectations. He is the God that when you pray a prayer, he's able to take it and give you above and beyond what you even asked for or thought about. And the interesting thing to note was that this was not the first time that a woman was previously barren who gave birth to the son. We, we read about them. Sarah, we read, we read about her. We talked about uh, 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 Hannah. We talked about these other women who, who have had these things happen. And Zechariah, as a priest, knew these stories. He knew these stories. Rachel, Hannah, other women of the Old Testament. Yet with all of these things, with all of these promises, with all this, the, the wonder of these words that came out of the mouth of the angel, something interesting happened to Zechariah in this moment. And the Bible says in uh, verse number 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For my wife I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The first thing out of Zechariah's mouth was not hallelujah, glory to Jesus. Yes, finally. Wow, you answered our prayers. Thank God. The first thing out of Zechariah's mouth was doubt, was fear, wanting a bit more guarantee. I mean, if an angel appearing to you inside the temple wasn't enough, with glorious, wonderful promises of the, the, the forerunner of the Messiah, Zechariah, immediately, he was a priest, he was smart. He knew that the kind of child this is going to be, this is the forerunner to the Messiah. This is it. Like, this was the, this was the climactic moment for Jews. They were looking forward to this moment when Messiah would show up. This was the apex of their religion and their faith, which, by the way, it's, they're still looking for him, even though he's come and been crucified and risen and he's... He's available to them if they should just call on his name. They're still looking for Messiah to come. He, they're still waiting for the apex moment in their faith when Messiah will come to the earth. But, but So here is a Jew hearing the promises from an angel, the mouth of an angel. The forerunner of the Messiah is going to be your son, who's, by the way, going to be a miracle child, not only born, born by an old woman, but an old woman who was barren. And the first thing out of his mouth was how shall I know this? This is tremendously comforting to me. This is tremendously comforting to me because in the midst of almost undeniable proof, the human heart is still capable of doubt. So for all of you here today that have struggled with doubt and beat yourself up over the questions you've had about the validity of the Word of God. The validity of, is the Holy Ghost even real? For those of you that have wrestled long and hard and felt the weight of that and felt perhaps the shame and not even able to confess it or say it out loud because you don't want to be labeled as a doubter, you don't want to be, you know, uh, the priest, a priest who lived righteously all his life, had the promises of God, had every reason to believe, has an angel appear before him, still wrestled with doubt in the face of an angel. Do not be dismayed. 
Do not be discouraged by your doubt, but bring your doubts to God. You can do nothing better with your doubt than bring them to Jesus. What kind of doubt did he have? It wasn't intellectual doubt. It wasn't logical doubt. There was an angel st standing in front of him. This is, this is not logical doubt. What kind of doubt was he struggling with? The most difficult doubt to deal with is what psychologists call emotional doubt. Emotional doubt. Emotional doubt springs from the seeing or experiencing an injustice or suffering and not being able to reconcile it in your mind. Because it gets rooted in your emotions, it's not as easy as saying, well, here's the proof that this thing exists. Because there's the question, well, if that is true, why does it hurt so much? If God is real, why is there suffering? If, if God does care, why didn't it happen the way I thought it would happen? And there's, there's, there's a sense of injustice in your heart. There's a sense of offense. There's maybe a sense of hurt or pain associated with it. And, and so it crosses over from intellectual understanding to emotions. And emotions, if they're not dealt with, if you don't deal with the emotion, if you don't reconcile the emotion that you've had, and the damage and the hurt and the pain that the emotion has caused, the doubt remains, the doubt lingers, because it's not intellectual doubt, it's emotional doubt. It's interesting that later on in his life, John the Baptist, the child, the miracle child, would actually go through this very same struggle. He was in prison, about to have his head cut off, and he sends his disciples to Jesus. Jesus had been casting out demons, raising the dead, healing the sick in mass, preaching about the kingdom of God, doing everything Messiah was supposed to do. And John sends a message to his cousin and says, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? Because I didn't expect to be in this prison awaiting my death sentence. I expected to be alongside you running this race right to the very end. Jesus said, go back and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. And blessed is he who does not get offended in me. What Jesus was asking John to do, remember the facts and deal with your emotion. Remember the truth but deal with your emotion because blessed is he who does not allow offense to harbor in their heart towards me. John did it right. He brought his doubt to Jesus. He took his doubt right to the source and Jesus gave him the remedy. The remedy for emotional doubt is remember the facts and deal with your emotions. Do not dismiss your emotions. Acknowledge your pain. When you face uncertainty, when you face questions, I did not expect to be living this, this time of year without the presence of my father in my life. I expected him to be able to play with my kids, and at Christmas time, it surfaces probably more intensely than in any time of the year. And those of you that have lost loved ones, you might have similar experiences where at, at significant 
times of the year when there's lots of extra family time. The loss of a loved one is more acute because they were always there. They were always part. They were buying gifts. They were doing the presents. They were doing all the fun things. And, I, and I'm looking at my two youngest and saying, my dad's complete, doesn't even know their names unless the Lord reveals that to him in heaven. I don't know. Uh, but he's missing all of these fun times with the kids. And so the loss is acute. And that, that creates emotional doubt. God, why? Why? And I've got to go back to that, those experiences and acknowledge that was painful. And I probably won't ever know the why. But I can, I can not become offended in God's way of handling things. I can, I, can, I can take my doubts to God. I can bring my hurts and my emotional questions to God and lay them at his feet and he will care about it. Behavioral science gives us some clues too as how to, how to deal with our doubts, our emotional hurts and pains. A lot of times we struggle in our brain because the brain is, is, is not concrete. Your brain is not hardwired. Your brain is softwired. So often what behavioral therapy will teach you is take your thoughts and put them on a piece of paper. Write them down. And there is something almost magical about it. When you put your thoughts on paper, you write them out on paper, they become hard now. Before they were soft, you know, they're just kind of floating around up here, in and out. And you can argue yourself, but your brain is very good. Mine, mine is anyway. I can try and argue with my brain, and it slips and slides right out of that argument, and I can go like that for a good solid hour, just, and, and you know, you, it's called stewing. You ever done that? You stewed about a problem, and you, you're thinking and thinking. But if you ever take that thought and you put it on a piece of paper, it becomes concrete, solid, and permanent right in front of you. And then you can teach yourself, I'm going to just deal with this particular thought and nothing else. So, for example... They give the example, I'm going to certainly fail this test even though I've studied hard for it. I'm too dumb to pass it. This is the thought. It's the emotional doubt. There's no logic to that at all. You've studied. Logically, you should have the memory. Logically, you should be able to do it. But the emotion of it, the emotional anxiety, fear, all of these things that are struck by this thought, rise up and, and actually bring the, 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 the prophecy to pass. It's, it, it's, it's like self-prophesying and you, your self-prophecy becomes true, right? Or, or you might say, well, I'm, af I'm afraid of telling that person the truth because they're going to be angry with me. So you hold it in and you don't tell and you don't speak up and, and eventually it comes out and what, guess what? They are angry. They are angry because the truth came out in a way that wasn't honest and upfront and, and it confirms your prophecy. They hear the truth and they're angry with me. When it might have been better just to go to them and say, hey, you know what, we need to talk about something that might be difficult to hear. They'll be far less angry with that approach than, than letting it fester. And you see what I'm saying? But your thoughts get in the way. But if you, the behavioral science will tell you, write it down on a piece of paper and then address that on the paper. I'm going to certainly fail this test. Well, then you reframe that. Well, I might fail this test, but I likely will pass because I've studied and worked hard. I've done my best. And you know what? Even if I fail this test, it's not the end of the world. If I fail this test, it's no big deal. I, I can, maybe, maybe the teacher will help me 
let me take a retake assignment. But I'm going to do my best, and I'm going to I'm going to study hard, and I'm going to I'm going to deal with my emotions. Amen. That cloud. I'm just give, trying to give you an example of how how emotional doubt can sabotage. What was Zachariah's problem? Emotional doubt. Time after you think about it, they tried and wondered, and they waited. You know, past the date when it was possible to tell if she was pregnant or not. No, initially, the pregnancy didn't happen. So they try again, and they try again, and they try again, and it's not working, and it's not working, and the, the, the hope's getting raised and crashing and raised and crashing. That emotional doubt weakened him to the point where even when he was standing in the face-to-face -face with an angel, that doubt was so much always part of his life that he said, how am I going to know? This is possible. And then the Bible tells us the angel did something that might look like a punishment, but I don't think it was. The angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. In other words, the angel said, Zechariah, I'm going to hinder your ability to speak. You will not be allowed to speak a word until this prophecy comes true. And you might look at that and say, oh, that's, that's a bit of a punishment. He can't even tell anybody what he saw. He can't speak. But God was doing him a favor. God was preventing him from speaking this thing out of existence. Proverbs 18.20 says, Wise words satisfy like a good meal. The right words bring satisfaction. The tongue can bring death or life. Those who love to talk will reap the consequences. And they do. 2 Corinthians 4.13 says, We have the same spirit of faith as according as it is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Therefore we believe, so we speak. In other words, what, what Paul is writing in Corinthians is he's saying, whatever you believe, it's going to come out of your mouth. And if you, what you believe is something false, the false thing is going to come out of your mouth no matter what. And if you believe something that's true, the true thing is going to be what comes out of your mouth. And your words have the power to bring life or bring death. So in order to help Zechariah, because God saw the difficulty that he and his wife were having, the emotional doubt that had plagued them for years and years, and God said, Zechariah, this prophecy is so important to my kingdom. I cannot allow you to sabotage it by continuing to speak these words of doubt. So the sign you asked for is actually going to be your muteness. You will be mute until the baby is born as evidence that I am going to do this thing. God was helping Zechariah. I love that God did not disqualify Zechariah because of his doubt. For those of you that think you're disqualified from serving God or loving God or receiving a promise from God because you have emotional doubt, I'm here to tell you God... God took a man who was plagued with doubt and said, I'm still going to fulfill my promise because it's a promise and I don't go back on my promises. Uh, God is able to take even your doubt and help transform it into faith. He's able to take the thing that you struggle with uh, and help you work through it. 
Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Hardship dug the well. The length of the trial deepened the longing of his soul. And when at every passing year, the whole of his soul grew deeper and deeper until God came and filled that soul filled that emptiness with himself and with a promise from him. I'm here to tell you that you could have prayed a prayer 35 years ago and lost hope on that prayer. But God came to Zechariah and says, I've heard your prayer. Uh, no doubt Zechariah had stopped praying for this thing because it was no longer physically possible in his mind. But God remembered the prayer of 10, 15, 20 years ago and answered it at the right time. Don't lose hope. Your prayers that have been unanswered, your prayers and promises that have not been yet fulfilled, God can still bring those things to fulfillment in their proper timing and at their proper season. If you have doubt, bring your doubt to Jesus. If you have emotional weakness and sorrow, write it down. Bring it to God. Pray about it. Take it before him. Maybe do an inventory on your life and say, God, what are the, un un the forgotten prayers that I've prayed? What are the forgotten things that I've given up on? Help me to have hope again. Can we stand this morning? Zechariah found hope in, in God. He found hope in the promises of God. Hallelujah. And I don't know where you're at this morning. What kind of doubt you've faced. What kind of emotional things you've dealt with. What that's, what that's wrought in your heart. But I'm here to let you know that God still hears your prayers. He's still able to do miracles in your life. He's still able to do wonderful things through you. Hallelujah. Would you find a place of prayer and talk to the Lord about it?